Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 133, In the Midst of the Gods. And today on the podcast, I want to look at three Old Testament passages, one of which we've looked at already, and it's where I've pulled the title of this week's episode from, and that is from Psalm chapter 82. I want to read the entire psalm for you this time and not just two verses so that you can um, understand again what the idea is behind the gods joining the Most High God in governing the nations of the world. And then I want to look into the book of Daniel, um, specifically Daniel chapter 4, which is a fairly lengthy chapter, but I want to read the whole thing. It's about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that disturbs him, and he seeks out Daniel. And some of the things that Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar about his dream have directly to do with the sons of God, with the holy ones that we've seen from Genesis chapter 6 and from Psalm 82 and from Deuteronomy 32 that you might even have glanced over when you've read this narrative before. And then I want to look at Daniel chapter 7, where God is in the midst of his divine counsel and one like a son of man approaches him. And we've looked at Daniel 7 several different times, particularly as we've walked through the book of Revelation, but I've been doing it there to highlight Jesus and his response to the nations. And now, as we've been talking about the gods or these divine beings that are placed in charge of nations, I want to set us up perfectly to be able to most clearly understand Jesus because the New Testament is packed with the ideas of the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which is Paul's way of describing these spiritual beings and the ways that they wreak havoc in our world and make injustice and oppression normal everyday experiences in our world and make people look out at the world and not even recognize that these forces are at work. And so for several weeks coming up in the podcast, we're going to take a lot of time to walk through lots of passages um, in Paul's letters, um, some of what Jesus says as well in the New Testament to help us understand what the purpose is of the church and how the church can follow in the ways of Jesus dealing with the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And I'm hoping to potentially challenge some thoughts that you've held before and then to open up new thoughts and help us understand just what it is that we are supposed to do and be as faithful followers of Jesus and as his body, the church. So before we get to the New Testament, we just need to look at a few more passages in the old. Again, this is not exhaustive. These are just the themes that have been surfacing in my own study, and I wanted to share them with you. So without any more of an introduction, let's just dive right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Psalm 82 in its entirety. It is just eight verses long, but I'll make some observations about it, which I think will help set us up for what we look at in the book of Daniel. Here's Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, Psalm 82, as you listened in here, the Lord says that in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then verses two through four is the judgment that the Most High is bringing against the divine council. He's bringing this against these nations, these rulers, if you will, that Deuteronomy 32 told us that God allotted to these nations of the earth, and he is rebuking them. Because they are leading these nations in ways of injustice. And it's interesting, when you read the Old Testament as a whole, he's talking about maintaining here the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescuing the weak and the needy, delivering them from the hand of the wicked. These are oftentimes the same accusations that the Lord gives to his own people. And here he's making the connection for you and for me that these gods, these sons of God, these this divine council members, he's holding judgment over these divine beings, these spiritual beings for failing to lead his people and the nations around them in the right way. Again, this is why Israel was repeatedly rebuked for following the nations of the, or following the gods, if you will, of the other nations, because if you worship the wrong God, you get the wrong society. And part of the function of these divine beings, part of the function of these sons of God, this divine council, were to orchestrate the national life of these various nations into worshiping the one true God. This is probably why it's possible as a Christian to think that our job is just to worship God and follow God. And we, we've talked about this. Um, you can almost have a Christian worldview without this idea, this second layer, if you will, of divine beings who are also orchestrating events. And that is because ultimately their job is the same as ours. And that is to order our lives individually and communally or nationally or collectively to follow the one true God. We are created in his image to rule over the earth. But the Lord is now entering into judgment because the people don't have knowledge or understanding. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. There's no justice going on in the earth. And now the Lord is going to call to an account for this lack of justice these spiritual beings, these, um, these gods, these sons of God. And so Psalm 82, I think, is really instructive. The last verse of it simply says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So ultimately, we know, and, and Psalm 2 points to this as well, that the inheritance of the nations will be given to the Son. They will bow down and worship Him. He will receive all the praise and all the honor. This is happening. It's coming one of these days. But here, the Lord is rebuking the divine beings of these nations because it's not going to be due to their leadership or their governance or their um, leading of the people is not going to be the reason why they're following the one true God. He is going to inherit all the nations. No thanks to these divine beings. And that's basically what Psalm 82 is saying, is, is it's inviting God to judge the earth because he will inherit all the nations. And these, these supernatural beings are not doing anything to draw the, to draw the nations into the knowledge of the one true God. 
And one of the clearest examples we have of this is is in the book of Daniel. And this is why I wanted to bring to your attention Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar being the king of Babylon, the Babylon at the time of the exile from the people of Israel, the Lord was um, had given himself the allotted portion over his own people. According to Deuteronomy 32, the Lord was going to lead his people into the worship of the Most High God. And it was their repeated desire to be like the other nations, to worship the gods of the other nations, to order their collective life and their national life based upon the desires, the fallen, broken unjust desires of the nations around them fighting for greed or injustice or, or, you know, violence or pride or national pride or whatever it happens to be. And then the people were taken into exile and they were done. It was done so by Babylon and Babylon, of course, as any nation would, you can imagine, um, began to be filled up with its own views of itself. And we see this a lot in the Old Testament, we see this a lot in present day too, but when when the Bible talks about idolatry and the Bible talks about these other gods, it oftentimes centers around one's national life or state religion or militaristic strength or pride of, you know, nationalistic or patriot patriotism, um, pride in one's own nation, greed, look at the strength that we've... Um, you know, we are responsible for. And of course, there are earthly leaders who embody those mentalities, but they don't see them as broken. They don't see them as fallen. They don't see them as in conflict with what the most high is actually due. He's the one who deserves the praise. He's the one that, that pride should be placed in and confidence should be placed in. And he's the one that we ought to be giving glory to, not to ourselves. And so there's a fascinating um, story of a time. I mean, what an encouragement this would be for the people of Israel who are in exile to Babylon. And that is that just because Babylon has come in and has taken over Israel and pulled the people out of exile and burned their temple to the ground, that does not mean that everything that this nation does is godly and good and right. It doesn't mean that their gods are more powerful than Israel's God. What it means is that the Lord has to faithfully judge his people because his people are not properly representing him to the nations. And if other nations don't properly represent him, he will judge them as well. And that's encouraging, I would imagine, to the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon, that God has not turned a blind eye to the corruption of Babylon. And if they step out of line, God will be quick to judge them too. And so I wanted to bring up Daniel chapter 4 because of this issue. And then there's a couple statements made um, in, in the the narrative as well. I'm, I'm trying to decide, I guess I haven't landed exactly on if I'm going to just read all 35 verses and then make a comment or if I'll stop the reading and make a comment as we go, I guess I'll just see what happens. But um, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, I'll, I'll read Daniel 4, 1 through 35 and just listen again to these themes of the Most High God, um, these other gods, the sons of God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and what he thinks about his own kingdom and all that has transpired as a result and see if you can you know, follow along with what it is that I think Daniel wants us to grasp. So in Daniel chapter four, it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, I'll stop right here for just a second. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is now going to recount how it is that he came to this understanding. And this is a fascinating um, uh, narrative for us. And so I think it's, it's really fitting for me to read it. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it, in it, in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, I want to stop here for just a second before reading verse 18. Verse 17 says that this sentence, this decree, is set by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Now, it's important to understand in Jewish tradition, stemming in large part from the book of Daniel, these watchers, the watchers, were these fallen sons of God from Genesis 6. Who, who Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3 as being spirits imprisoned in the days of Noah. And it's a strange passage from 1 Peter 3. We may take some time to look at it in a future episode, but it's referring to these watchers, these divine beings who were imprisoned. They were enslaved as a result of their fall away from, from the Lord. And now these divine council members are determining this decree. These beings are part of the decision process to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not another god, not Babylon as a country, 
the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men, not the highest of men, not the greatest of men, the lowliest of men. And the lowliest of men is the way that the Most High chooses to establish his kingdom. Now, those are my thoughts. Let me go back to the passage, Daniel 4, starting in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because of all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is making this connection. He said it three times now. The spirit of the holy gods is in you. So Daniel, in the same way that this divine council makes its divine recommendations and these watchers, these holy ones make their decree, you have some kind of insight into the way they think, into the way that they act, and into the way that they make decisions. Would you tell me what this means? Because you've got a connection here between the gods and the earth. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, I'd like to stop there for a moment at the end of verse 27. Notice what Daniel says. He wants this man, he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. He wants the Most High, he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know and he wants Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sins by practicing righteousness and his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Notice these two ideas, righteousness, which is the same as justice, and mercy to the oppressed, is these are the same two kinds of things <clears throat> Excuse me, that the midst of the gods, the divine council, is being accused of by the Lord in Psalm 82. He says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. How long will you judge unjustly? 
So the same thing is happening. Nebuchadnezzar is acting, humanly speaking, on his earthly kingdom in accordance with the way the gods have orchestrated the kingdom of Babylon to function. They always work in tandem. And so here, Daniel is pointing out that this is a decree of the watchers, the watchers, the holy ones, a word of the holy ones, with the most high God and recognizing that these watchers have decreed this to happen and they've needed this to happen because Nebuchadnezzar's actions within his own kingdom are not in line with the ways of the most high God. And so in verse 28 of Daniel 4, we we wrap it up with this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and several periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, as the narrative just outlined, has come full circle. He's come all the way back around to knowing who it truly is, who rules and governs all things on the earth. But notice he doesn't just identify what the Most High does with those who dwell on the earth. He says in verse 35, the last verse of Daniel 4 that I read, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So here, even Nebuchadnezzar now realizes that the Lord, the Most High, has his way among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And the two always go together. The Lord's divine family, the Most High's divine family, was meant to be a mirror representation of his earthly family. This is why he created man and woman in the image of, of these divine beings in order to allow the rule that these humans would have over the earth to mirror the rule and the governance that these divine beings had in the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. The earth and the heavens are connected. And it's the most high who does his will, whatever he wants, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And if those among the earth and the heavens do not want to step in line with the ways of the most high, 
he will enter into judgment with them both. Now, what's fascinating, I think, about this narrative, in in addition to the watchers and the holy ones and the decrees that are being made in this divine council, is that Nebuchadnezzar himself is made to eat grass like an ox. And his hair grew long like eagle's feathers, and he had claws like a bird, and he just wandered around aimlessly in the fields for these seven periods of time. And this is a theme that Daniel in the book will later on go on to identify, but that is that when men desire to usurp their rightful place as image bearers and subordinates to the Most High God, but they choose instead to elevate themselves to equal status and or above the status of the Most High God, as Nebuchadnezzar did, in honoring his own greatness. Look at what I have built, this fantastic kingdom that I have built, and the glory that is coming to me as a result of the grandeur of my kingdom. When man places himself outside of his ordained place in this world, as an image bearer of the Lord who is then sent to care for and to rule over the creatures of the earth. When man steps out from that place and puts himself on an equal footing with the Lord, instead of actually like the enemy tempted the first man and the first woman, instead of actually being like God and knowing good and evil, they actually become like the beasts. And this might be one of the first times that this surfaces, but the book of Daniel loves conversations about beasts. And so here we see Nebuchadnezzar, who is the embodiment of the kingdom of Babylon, becoming nothing more than a beast who wanders around aimlessly with its instincts and no wisdom, no clearing. He's not able to think clearly. He's not able to process clearly. He's not able to image the Lord God at all while he's wandering around eating grass like an ox and having his hair grow long and his nails grow like bird's claws. The idea is that when men following the broken, unjust ways of the gods who rule the nations, seek to become gods in themselves and corrupt the ways of the Most High by injustice or afflicting the destitute or uh, not caring for the weak and the needy and exalting the strong. When any of those things happen, which seems so natural to human to humankind, then the Lord says, I'm going to enter into judgment with you. You are going to act and live as if you were a beast. Now, Daniel chapter 6 is probably the most famous scene as it depicts beasts, and that is that as Daniel refuses to um, follow the ways of Nebuchadnezzar and um, decides that he's going to continue to pray um, to Nebuchadnezzar or to his own God in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar desiring worship from everyone else, Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. In fact, lions are depicted later on in Daniel chapter 7 as one of several beasts of kingdoms that Daniel himself is given a vision of and doesn't quite know what to do with. And so in Daniel chapter 7, again, a, a passage we've looked at a handful of times. This is kind of helpful now to read several sections of Daniel on our way here. But in Daniel 7, 9 to 14, Daniel has a vision. And here's what he sees. It says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. Now, this is Daniel 7, 9. And and it's interesting when you read this because it says that thrones were placed. Notice it doesn't say there was a throne and the ancient of days sat down on it. No, there are thrones because there are multiple beings in this divine council. There are multiple beings, one of which 
is the Most High, who as the Creator rules over all the other divine beings. Okay, once again, I, I don't know if, if you were confused at all in listening to last week's or the weeks before episode, but I am not claiming that these gods of the nations are on the same level as the Most High. I love the phrase, the Most High, because it signifies he's above every other one. These, these beings, in the same way that mankind was made by the Most High, was created by the Most High, these other beings were created by him as well. They're not equals with him, but their attempt to become equal, to step out of their God-given role, the Most High granted them a certain place and a certain responsibility. When they've stepped out of that role, they become corrupt in the same way that man does. But it's important to recognize that in this scene here, there are multiple thrones because there are multiple members of this divine council. So as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hairs of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we know from Jesus's interaction with the high priests and the religious leaders in Matthew 26 that he identifies himself and understood himself as this son of man. In fact, of all the titles that Jesus refers to himself by, Son of Man, far and away, is the most common throughout the Gospels. And it's in reference to this Son of Man coming with the clouds, approaching the Ancient of Days, approaching the Most High, and receiving from Him an everlasting kingdom. But I want you to remember in chapter 4 of Daniel, numerous times in Nebuchadnezzar's recounting of his own dream— or recounting of what happened to him and Daniel interpreting it, numerous times we read that it is the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, one that shall not be passed, that shall not pass away. But here, the Ancient of Days gives to this Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Well, remember in Psalm 82, the last verse of the psalm, it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Right. The Most High, the Ancient of Days, shall inherit all the nations. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And then one like a son of man approaches the Most High, 
whose everlasting kingdom is his and who will inherit all the nations. And to this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel gets a glimpse of the fact that in the midst of all of these beast-like kingdoms, Babylon just being one in a long line of beast-like kingdoms. Egypt was a beast-like kingdom. Assyria was a beast-like kingdom. Babylon was a beast-like kingdom. Greece was a beast-like kingdom. Syria, Persia was a beast-like kingdom. Rome was a beast-like kingdom. These various kingdoms of the earth who exalt themselves to the place of the gods and believe that their their power, their strength, their national pride earned them the place of being better and more significant and more powerful than every other nation on the planet and their own pride, their own greed, and their own aggression. I would would say quite, quite simply those three ideas, pride, greed, and aggression in the forms of nationalism, consumerism, and militarism have been the three big things that have plagued nations ever since the beginning and is still happening today. So through the book of Revelation, for instance, I talked a lot about that. And it's really why I wanted to resurface this topic because I wanted to show and I wanted us to walk through this understanding that we can and need to talk about individual complicity in sin, individual participation in the brokenness that is in our world, but recognizing that there are things going on at national levels and at statewide levels or nations um, or, or entities that are larger than just a few people where these spiritual beings are having direct influence in unjust practices. And I would say that these three, pride, greed, and aggression, again, in the forms of nationalism, national pride, our nation is greater than, other, than another nation. Our nation has a unique place in God's plans for the world that no other nation has been granted. I have heard that kind of language used very freely, very openly, and very confidently by Christians and applying it to America. That is what is called nationalism. It is national pride. It is stemmed by some dis, you know, uh, misguided, misunderstood, idolatrous belief in the greatness of one's own nation, which is being fueled by these fallen spiritual beings who want to rally people around their own national identity and forget that the purpose for which all nations exist is to rally around the ways of the Most High. Sadly, many people, because of pride, greed, or aggression, forget that the purposes of their nation is to exalt the ways of the Most High. Now, the reason why this is so significant is because what this son of man is doing in receiving from the ancient of days this kingdom that is eternal is that it is done so in direct opposition to these beastly kingdoms which are said to be destroyed. 
And so what you and I have to do when we prepare our way for the coming of Jesus is to ask, how was it then that Jesus exercised the rule that was pleasing to the Ancient of Days such that the justice that the Ancient of Days has wanted done for the kingdoms of the earth all along was fulfilled perfectly by the Son of Man? How did the Son of Man judge justly, not unjustly, as Psalm 82.2 tells us the gods of the nations did? How did the Son of Man not show partiality to the wicked, as the sons of God did in Psalm 82 verse 2? How does the Son of Man give justice to the weak and the fatherless? How does he maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute? How does he rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked? If you want to know how he does that, you and I need to read the Gospels. Because what Jesus is very explicitly doing in the Gospels is he is going nose to nose with the beast-like kingdoms of the earth, and he is challenging their claim that to live in ways that are unjust and to pretend that those ways are normal and to strive for greed and for strength and for power is the antithesis of the ways of the Most High. And for the church of Jesus Christ, who seeks to establish the kingdom that Jesus came to set up, we have to shake off. We have to reject the very common practices that are embedded in our nation's way of thinking about itself and about the world that don't line up with the ways of Jesus. This is very real and it's very practical. And Paul has so much to say about the principalities, about the powers, about the rulers, and about the authorities. He's always speaking with those terms about these geographical Um, locations, these places, but he's speaking primarily about big time ideologies that have embedded themselves into the ways of thinking in our world. And I'll walk through several passages. I I got going just the other day and my mind and spirit were reeling and I, I could hardly type fast enough all the passages that kept coming to mind where Paul speaks in this way and how I think we ought to best understand it as Christians. But I want to keep coming back to these three points here of pride, greed, and aggression in the forms of nationalism, consumerism, and militarism, because these are in fact three areas, pride, greed, and aggression, that Jesus is continually dealing with. I mean, think about how much that Jesus teaches on pride and on being poor in spirit rather, right, from the Sermon on the Mount. Or think about when Jesus talks about greed. If you have two tunics, give to one who has none. Like, why are you, you know, worrying about what what it is that you have looking and seeking to get more, giving away your money? Don't say to yourself, we're going to build bigger barns for all the crops that we have coming in. Your life could end tonight and you could have nothing. And then aggression. I mean, Jesus' words about turning the other cheek. And, and, you know, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Like why respond with aggression? Why respond with hate and murder in your heart when you could forgive and entrust your life to me? You know, I find it somewhat discouraging, honestly, when I hear people get disgruntled today that things like the Ten Commandments aren't publicly posted, you know, where people... Um, reject the idea of, of publicly posting the Ten Commandments. As a Christian, the Ten Commandments aren't my go-to for what I expect the ways of the Son of Man to be in the world. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the place where the ways of the Son of Man are to be lived out in the world. And yet the very people that I oftentimes get up here getting upset over the Ten Commandments not being you know, put in public places would not want Matthew chapter 5 and 6 put in public places. Do not judge, as Matthew 7 says, turn the other cheek, forgive your enemies, love and pray for those who persecute you. Like that's the ethic of the son of man. That's the ethic of the one who receives the eternal kingdom from the ancient of days. That's the ethic that the one who's established God's eternal kingdom and invited the world to be participants in it. That's the kind of ethic that is truly otherworldly. You can adhere to the 10 commandments or think you do rather, and be just as beast-like as Israel became in their own national life. And this is why I spend a lot of my time on this podcast in particular, making sure that Christians or any religious person doesn't get comfortable in their thinking that everything they think and do is right and good and everything those liberals or those unbelievers do outside the church is what God is really disgusted by. And the reason I spend so much time doing that is because Israel itself was allotted the portion to the, of the Most High to govern and guide her, and her own actions continued to be wayward. They took in, and I think in, in the, the, the principalities and the powers, even took something as good as the law and corrupted it for the people. I mean, it's fascinating when you read, but the Israelites took the law and began to see it as a way of separating themselves from the people around them. As the way of saying to themselves, well, look how much better we do at obeying the law than the world. We must be better in God's eyes than the world. Instead of seeing the law as the Lord's divine way of living and ruling in this earth and then seeking ways to find, um, to show mercy and compassion on those who struggled to actually live it out. Now, we'll have more to say about that in the future as we go, but I'm going to wrap up this episode by just pointing this out. One like a son of man comes to the ancient of days in the midst of these thrones, in the midst of this council. All the divine beings are watching. Many of them, according to the New Testament, were not even aware of the plan or the means by which this one like a son of man was going to inherit this kingdom. In fact, Paul tells us that if the rulers had understood this plan of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because when they did, when they helped to orchestrate the plot to end the life of Christ, because they didn't want their rule and authority to go away, it was that very action that took their rule and authority away. And Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, will have a lot to say about what the Lord is now doing in establishing his kingdom through the followers of Christ, through the followers of Jesus, the Son of Man, and ultimately going toward a time where he will establish his kingdom from one end of the earth to the other. And so that's really all I wanted to do today. I I do kind of see this as a wrap-up of some of the things from the Old Testament. We've now had a couple of episodes just on this. I do plan to reinsert an episode Um, I might call it Throwback Thursday. I'm not sure if that's 
um, detracting listeners or if people are still interested in that. But at the very beginning of our Revelation study, I had an episode, I think it was episode number 46, where I tried to show some of the distinctions between a nation who worships the Lord and a nation that worships Baal. And I tried in that episode, without going into all of this detail, I tried to outline how the way you believe God rules and governs the earth, if you choose to rule and govern the earth in the same way, then you feel like you are imaging that God. And so this is why it was important for the people of Israel when questioning who was God, the Lord or Baal. And now I hope you might have a little more insight into how that was even a question for the people. Well, well, only God is real, right? Well, no, there are other gods. And the way that Baal chose to govern his nation, the one that was allotted to him, was very different from the way the Lord chose to govern his nation. And the people have to make a decision regarding which God's way of ruling do they want to image. This is always the question, which is why choosing to speak about nationalism, consumerism, or militarism is still a topic that has to be discussed. Because you and I also have to ask the question, How do we arrange our national life in a way that is consistent with the way the Most High would want a nation to govern its national life? I know people say that and come to all sorts of conclusions about the way that works, but I'm sad to say that many people will slap the word God onto things that are very anti-Christ. And I don't mean the Antichrist. I mean they are opposed to the ways of Christ. They are opposed to the ways of the Son of Man because they in no way resemble the divine plan of the Most High who is bringing about a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Instead, many people will slap the name God onto nationalistic, consumeristic, or militaristic endeavors and imagine that they now have his blessing. When in fact, they have been duped into following the ways of the gods of the other nations and have mistaken those gods for the most high who what? Who inherits all the nations and establishes his kingdom through the son of man. Now, again, how that will happen is what the New Testament is all about, but it's important for us to understand this so that we don't put our confidence and our hope in the wrong place. So that is all the time that I'm going to take for this week's episode. Thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Um, I've got a little bit of a crazy week next week, and so I probably will insert the Throwback Thursday, or I might just simply title it something else and then give the explanation. But I will repeat that message for you in the middle of that episode so that you'll be able to connect, I hope, a few more dots in your own exploration of who the Lord is and why it's so important for us to know him as he's been revealed in Jesus. So thank you so much for those who have sent me an email or interacted with me in some way. I'm thankful for you, thankful for the chance to do this podcast, and I hope you have a fantastic week, and I'll see you next time.